Good morning. Uh, my name is Fritz. If I haven't met you, thank you, Eric, for leading uh, us this morning. Please continue to pray for the Denleys um, and the Naws and others in our church that are going through difficult seasons. Uh, if you are new here this morning, we uh, are doing a series through the book of Revelation. And uh, we are in Revelation chapter 3, looking at the last church this morning. We're going to close out uh, this section this morning. And then next week, we are going to begin an Advent series entitled Stranger Things. And no, that's not taken from the show. Um, but the first strange thing about is there any way to get those lights off someone, Dallas, anyone that are shining right here, by the way? Thank you, if, if you can. Um, the first strange thing is it's going to be a little abbreviated in that the second week of Advent, we're not going to do a candle, and that's going to, the logical part of all of you, it's going to drive you crazy. Uh, but we're having Murray's ordination service that Sunday morning, so you're invited to that. Uh, and then there will be punch and cake in the back uh, afterwards for all those who can come. But we're going to look at the strangeness of Advent and the strangeness of the Incarnation. So last week we looked at, thank you, I know now there's no light, is there? Um, I don't know, maybe that light moved or something. It, it's, it, you can leave it on, it's fine. I am high maintenance, I admit it, do you? You probably admit it about me, that's fine. Um, so um, we're going to look at this, last week we looked at the letter to the church at Philadelphia, and if you remember, if you were here, it, is a, it was a small church with a big opportunity for ministry, but there was a hindrance to that ministry, and that hindrance was that they felt like they were small and weak and sort of useless uh, in comparison with the big old religious system around them. This week, we are actually looking at a prosperous church with a big ministry opportunity, and their hindrance is their pride in their prosperity. So read with me, along with me, in verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation... I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. And I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. 
The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Our gracious God, as we have prayed each week through this series, we do ask that you, the glorious God, eternal and transcendent, who became a man in the person of Jesus, the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man, our Judge, King, Priest. Lord, we praise you and ask that you indeed would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you were not just saying to this church and these churches in John's day, but what you were saying to the churches and our church in our day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, this happens to me all the time. It happened to me yesterday. I know it's going to happen, and I do it anyway, and you probably do too. Maybe someone has been at the sink washing dishes or putting dishes in the dishwasher and washing them off, and you follow that person. Maybe it was even you that did it, and you just forgot, and you go to get a cup of water, and what happens? You turn on the cold water, and you get the water, and you drink it, and you immediately spit it out, right? Anybody do this? Children? Because the water's lukewarm. And who wants lukewarm water? That's one of the things that Jesus is asking and saying to this church. They have a hindrance to ministry. He's saying they're not really good for anything. See, you have to look at the, the passage, and the way we're going to break this down this morning, just so you can follow along, there will be a longer than normal introduction, and then there will be two points, two things that Jesus says to the church here to do, and then followed with a couple brief promises. So beginning this, looking at the introduction, what you have to understand about the church of Laodicea was that it was in, in sort of a tri-cities area. You had uh, the church at Colossa, and the church at Colossa was known for how cold their water was. It was very refreshing. You wanted to drink it. You were hot, you were thirsty, and so you wanted their cold water. But there was another city called Heropolis, and Heropolis was known for its hot springs. And if you know anything about the history of hot springs, people traditionally and historically would go to hot springs to be healed. They were considered to have medicinal effects and to help heal. And so what Jesus is saying right out of the gate to this church in Colossae is you've got, or, or the church in Laodicea, you've got Colossae over here that they have refreshing water. It's good for refreshment. And you have the ch church over here, you have the, the city over here, and they're their water is good for healing. But you guys, your water is lukewarm. Most commentators following archaeologists say that, that uh, Laodicea had to pipe in their water from five miles away. Now think about that. Let's say it started cold. 
but it has to travel five miles. What happens by the time it gets there? It's going to be lukewarm at best. And so what he's saying is this. You're really not good for anything. You're neither hot nor cold. And what he's really saying is this to us. If you feel yourself or you sense yourself like you know that there are ministry opportunities out there, but really in your heart of hearts, you're not motivated toward them. You're lukewarm. If there are opportunities to serve in the church and you don't ever show up to serve, it may be that you're lukewarm. If there are opportunities to love your neighbor and have them over, no matter what their sexual situation. And Jesus says, I want you to have those people over. And you find yourself, something inside of you is all messed up that you can't even find yourself loving your neighbor or enemy. It may be because we are lukewarm. And what Jesus really says here is it might be that we have a prosperity problem. That we might have a prosperity problem. We might be like the church in Laodicea. And what they were like was they were extremely prosperous. Look at verse 7. Verse 17, it's not just that they were, it's that they knew they were. Look at what Jesus says. You say this about yourself. Which indicates what? Not just that it may be true, but you believe it's true and you take pride in it. I say about myself, when I look in the mirror, man, you look sharp. Right? You say, I'm rich. I'm loaded. I got everything I need. I've got good health. I've prospered. And the interesting thing here is we know that prosperity clouds the gospel. This is, this is how I think about it. What the Bible really says is that if, let's say you've got the hub of a, of a wheel, a bike wheel. The hub is God. The hub is Jesus. And everything else in your life is a spoke from that. Work, family, relationships, suffering, all these things are spokes. But what we really think is we're the hub. And Jesus is just one spoke. We want Jesus in that wheel, but we want prosperity too, don't we? And we know that when that happens, prosperity clouds the gospel. The disciples understood this when the rich young ruler, who was not just wealthy, he was wealthy, but he was young, he was moral, he was, he was seen as very religious and well-to-do, he was well thought of. And they look at him and they say, well, if that guy who is the pinnacle of what we think is spiritual, if he can't get in, what are we going to do? Prosperity is a seductive mistress. And what's really going on here, if you know about the church of Laodicea, is this. The, the city of Laodicea, not just the church, but the city, was known for three things. It was known for their banking system, sort of like the financial 
Uh, it was like the New York City of the day, much smaller. But they were known for having lots of money. They were known for their textile industry, so they were known for, for, for like sophisticated clothing, stylish clothing, and they were known for a medical school of ophthalmology. Okay, they were far advanced in, in that. And so what you see happening is the church is absorbing the culture's values and mindsets. That's not a surprise to anyone, right? We're warned about that all the time growing up. Don't be materialistic. Don't become like the culture, all those good things. But listen to what, what else the commentators point out. The city actually had a motto. And you know what the motto was? Imagine if this were your motto. We need nothing. That was their city motto. Right? You drive in some statue or some building. We need nothing. Actually, it, it, there, was a, there was an earthquake and Rome reached out to all the cities affected by this earthquake and basically offered them their version of stimulus checks. And Colossus said, no, we don't need it. We're fine. We need nothing. And so you've got this church that is in the same boat with the culture absorbing that culture. I actually texted this to myself. One way that I remember things to put in my sermon is I will voice text to myself. And I went back when I was in my office to read it, and this is what my text said. We are absorbing the world's culture and its tomatoes and priorities. And Jesus is intervening. I don't know what tomatoes is supposed to mean, but you get the point. There is a non-Christian writer in uh, The Spectator a couple years ago, and he said this about Christians, especially celebrity Christians. He said, if Christianity is true and Christians imitate Jesus, it will be a startling contrast to the rest of the world. I'm not religious, so it's not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, then their belief should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my values and lifestyle, however, then there is nothing inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to be like them, it looks very much like they want to be like me. Lukewarm. Useless. It makes us useless for ministering. There's no power in that gospel. No true healing and no true refreshment. Let me just say this way. Again, I told you, I warned you, this is a long introduction. I know that we can have all the right theology. We can have great morals and values. We can have all of that and miss the power of the gospel. And let me give you one practical application for this. If you do not have non-Christians peering into your life and saying, what's going on there? That's a problem. Peter says that non-Christians should be able to look at you and say, where did you get that joy that Eric prayed for? Now on the flip side, if you do have that happening, even if you don't know what to do with some of their questions and conversations, and they try to pin you here and pin you there, I don't, as uncomfortable as that can be, you should rejoice and praise 
God. Because that means he is at work in you. So what does Jesus say to the church at Laodicea? He says two things and then he gives two promises. And, and, and what he does here, I want you to notice how he says them. He speaks like an Armenian. Not an Armenian, the country, but an Armenian. What is an Armenian? In, in reform circles, if you know anything, and that's okay if you don't, you can look up Joseph Arminius, but he was a guy that sort of, he didn't like Calvinistic theology. It, it sounded like it was all about us and all about what we do. And I'm just telling you, as I read these, it stood out to me that that's what Jesus sounds like. He sounds like my pastor growing up. He says, church, I want you to do two things. And yet when he says what they're to do, he sounds like a Calvinist, actually. So anyway, all that just to be funny for a minute. All right. First thing, he says, purchase grace, verses 17 and 18. Listen to what he says. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Do you see again? He says, your prosperity has covered up your real situation. What you're really like is you're pitiable, poor, wretched, and blind. And that can sound like terrible news. And the Bible says it all through Scripture that our condition apart from God is that we are to be pitied. Left to our own devices, we are wretched. We are poor. We are spiritually bankrupt. No matter what kind of retirement you have, no matter what kind of industry you're a part of, no matter how good of a life you have made for yourself, no matter how decent your friends and the church think you are, apart from Christ, this is what is true of us. And again, those things can blind us. And then we become self-reliant, independent, we take pride in ourselves. Look at what we have and look at what we have done. And what Jesus does here, he, he exposes the problem. And look at verse 18. He offers a solution. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you actually may be rich. He, look at, and this is interesting. He's not saying that your longing to be rich and, and, and all of these things is even bad. Do you notice that? He says you're just looking in the wrong places. You're looking at the wrong kind of wealth. I counsel to you, buy from me gold refined by the fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Do you see what he's doing here? He's saying he's going right to the heart of the three areas in that city where they took pride. You're known for your banking system and your financial portfolio. Waste of time. You're known for um, this textile industry and how well clothed you are. Wrong clothing. You're known for your ophthalmology and all this medical stuff. Wrong eye solution. Jesus is saying this. Look, 
you're actually, verse 18, and this is fascinating, what we're really trying to do is cover our shame. You know, we're talking more and more about shame in our culture and in the church, and that's actually a good thing because so much in years past, we just talked about guilt. But the Bible also talks about shame and that we need, from the days of Adam and Eve, we need to be covered, that our little fig leaves don't work. And what they were doing was they were saying, I'm going to put this clothing or this, I'm going to take these things and I'm going to cover my nakedness. Well, what is shame? We've talked about this before. Just for a second, guilt is I've done wrong. Shame is I'm wrong. There's something There's something wrong with me. Guilt is I've broken the law. Shame is I am broken. Guilt is I did something bad. Shame is I just feel bad. And the Bible gives you permission to say, I feel bad. And it also gives you permission to look and say, how am I trying to cover that. Jesus is saying this, you are poor, but only I can give you the wealth that you need. You are spiritually bankrupt, but I became poor for you so that you can receive the riches of God's grace. You are naked, but it's not for you to cover your shame. In fact, Jesus was made naked and exposed and took our shame upon him at the cross. That is why he truly is the only door. Because no religion, religion is just a covering for our shame. Jesus says, you are blind. And on the cross, I will become blind to God's love. I will be separated from God so that he will, in a sense, go from being my father to just my God. Rejecting his son so that we can be seen and loved by him. And Jesus is saying, we've got the wrong idea of prosperity. You are to buy grace, buy buy what is free, buy from me. You think you need nothing. In fact, you need everything. And Jesus says, I have it. I have it. What is God using in your life right now that he's pulling or taking out of your life something that you may be using to cover your shame? And actually, that which you feel like is a curse, God is using as a blessing to expose your need and to Fill it to give you everything. Jesus says, purchase grace, and it's free. You do nothing to earn it. Listen to how he, Paul says this in Galatians chapter 3 to the church. He says, oh foolish Galatians, he's writing to Christians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. 
Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit, now you're trying to be perfected by your flesh? Secondly, he says this. He says that we are to purchase grace and it's free. Secondly, restored intimacy. Look at verses 19 through 20. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. I want you to notice here, this can sound like a harsh letter. All commentators say this is the toughest letter. Murray really wanted to preach this letter today. I said, no, let me handle it. But I want you to hear the graciousness of your God in this. He counsels them. He invites them. He knows their pitiable condition and how they're faking it and they're becoming like the culture and they're trying to cover their shame. And what does he say? I know you and I love you. Therefore, I discipline you. What parent who really loves their child allows them to continue down a path of self-destruction? Right? What teacher you've ever seen the show Hoarders or Intervention, that's what they're about. You've got someone that is just, just in this deep pit of despair or sadness or shame. And, and, and they have all this stuff in their house where you can barely walk. And the whole show is about how someone in their family says, we've tried everything. We've got to go outside of ourselves and bring in these people to intervene. And we love them so much. That's what Jesus is doing here. He says to them, because I love you and I know you, I want you to buy from me. But he also says, I want restored intimacy. Look at verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Do you see the intimacy there? Why did I have uh, Eric read that passage? He said, man, you realize what you're making me read this morning? Because the Song of Solomon, the reason it makes us so uncomfortable is it's so intimate. It's either about two lovers who are so in love and united and it doesn't wear off when they get older. Or it's about God and His church and the union and communion and fellowship that we have with Him through Christ. And, and what the picture is from that passage, because this is what John, remember, all the Old Testament allusions, he's reaching back and he's, he's going to this passage where the lover, the spouse, the husband is knocking on the door that the, the, his spouse has shut the door to intimacy. We typically hear this passage in non-Christian, you know, Billy Graham crusade or whatever, in an evangelistic way, right? I actually know people have been converted from this passage, and that's great, but it's not an evangelistic verse for non-Christians. It is an evangelistic verse for Christians. You see it. Jesus is standing at the door of a church and saying, you're trying to cover your shame with all of this and it's not working. 
you got to let me back in. Does this mean they were separated from God and they weren't Christians? No, this is not about perseverance of the saints. It's none of that. What he's saying is a Christian can get to a place where they feel and sense God's absence. Where, they, where they're longing for and missing out on his intimacy and they're trying to find it somewhere else. Now this is what's fascinating. Think about the people who are doing it. You have a people who are loaded, who are well-dressed, and healthy. If you walk into a room full of people like that, think about it, maybe you've been to the Derby. Hmm? And it's like the top of the top. I walk into that room, I'm terribly intimidated, right? It's off-putting. And there may be many of you thinking right now, yeah, it's kind of off-putting to me too. I don't like to be around those kind of people, right? Because they seem like they don't want to be around us. <laughs> Whatever. It's very off-putting to us, but it's not off-putting to God. Do you see that? Do you see it? Like we get that God goes to the poor and those who are truly in the orphan and the widows of the world. We get that and we love that and we're drawn to that. Those, those people are in such difficult situations. But what we don't get is these off-putting people that externally are not in difficult situations. They're in prosperity situations and Jesus wants intimacy restored with them too. You see that grace? Let me try to illustrate this. I was at my neighbor's the other day and they, I've told you about them before, they're nominal Jews, not practicing Jews. And it's amazing that they actually invite me into their home. They ask all sorts of questions. And I look at them and I say, now if I answer this question, you're going to promise to still be my friend? They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But she was going on and on the other day about how Christians have treated her over the years. And she said this. She said, I was working with an anesthesiologist, and it was 8 in the morning, and this guy has everything that you would want, very well-to-do, kind of moral, all that good stuff. And I got a text from, uh, several texts from my friends. It's when Stephen Hawking died. And she said, we really loved Stephen Hawking. We respected his work. We felt like he made a lot of con contributions to society, regardless of what you think about that. And, and I kind of started crying because I realized he had died. And the anesthesiologist looked at me and said, well, why are you crying? I said, well, because Stephen Hawking died and we really respected him and my children are sad. And he said, oh, he's going to hell. You shouldn't care about him. That was his answer. That's pretty off-putting. And you know what Jesus would say to that anesthesiologist? Bro, all your medical training, all that you've earned in this life, all the things you are covering your shame with, they're just signs that you do not have intimacy with me anymore. Because if you had intimacy with me, like Peter says, 
you would grieve that anyone rejects the gospel. Because I grieve when people reject the gospel. Who would have thought that's an intimacy problem? Think about Leah for a second. If you know the story of Jacob, Rachel and Leah goes in honeymoon night, thinks he has the cute one, Rachel, and behold, it was Leah. Leah had to live not just with a husband that didn't love her, but with a sister that was prettier than her. And I'm sure it caused a lot of sadness and shame in her life. So much so that when she started having children, she named them this. Hey, this is my son. Maybe my husband will love me now. What's his name? It's maybe, well, we could just call him Reuben for short, but it's really maybe my husband will love me now. Oh, and um, here's my other son, Levi, when translated means now my husband will be attached to me. That's your son's name? What we know that God actually did care about Leah. And God did love Leah. And God gave her a son named Levi. And one day, someday, there would be another Levi. There would be a, another priest, but a, a high priest who looks at his disciples and says crazy intimate things that are actually a little more uh, difficult to receive than the Song of Solomon. He says things like this, Father, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And you ready for the intimate crazy part? That they also may be in us. You're in God. And God is in you. Intimacy. Why? So that the world may believe. Oh, city of Laodicea, what you're trying to do to cover your shame and the sadness it brings and how that makes you run to things to find intimacy and to find attachment and love. We have the answer. Christ, the Levi that would come and look at his disciples and say, I now call you friends. Eat with me. That is the intimacy that we have. Would you be honest with yourself and say, have I just stuffed that longing down and it's popping up like a beach ball underwater somewhere else? Let that lead you to go back and open the door to Jesus very quickly, two promises he ends with. He says, purchase grace, open the door, and you will have eternal royalty and eternal, eternal intimacy. You think about what those people must have looked like. They had it all, well-dressed, right? Healthy, fit, you might say they look like royalty. Kings and queens parading through the earth, 
And Jesus says that longing is real. You were a kingdom of priests that we talked about in chapter 1 in the garden, and you had this communion with me, and I walked with you with this perfect intimacy, and I sent you out as my kings and queens into the earth with this mandate to subdue and rule all things in a beautiful God-honoring way, not in a destructive way. And that longing should lead you to me. And when it leads you to me, here is the promise. You will sit, he says, 21, with me on my throne. Did you hear the second part of that? You will sit with me on my Father's throne. Does that confuse anyone? So here's the image. Jesus is sitting on whose throne? His Father's throne. My house, no one sat in my dad's chair. If he did, you immediately got up when he walked in the room. Well, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He's God. man. Sure, he can sit on the throne. And who does he say is going to sit with him? You. People that have opened the door and said, you know what? I don't need as much as I thought I did. I can give those clothes away. I can put someone else's needs ahead of mine. Their physical uh, uh, situation more than mine. Their lack. Um, I can give away money. I can give away stock options. I can give away all sorts of things because this is true. And I've been clinging to these things. And I I don't need them anymore. Because I am going to sit with Jesus on his throne. Let's pray. Father, each of these letters begins with a beautiful picture of Jesus. Here he is the inaugurator of the new creation. And they all end with beautiful future promises to support and encourage and uphold us in the time being as we live in this, the last days. Lord, fix our eyes on Christ who has begun that new creation and fix our eyes on the future that you would equip and enable us to live with joy in this life now, Lord, and in the days to come. In Jesus' name, amen.